This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. read a very interesting article in the Atlantic, and the author was Peter Pomerantsev. And the article was called, We Can Only Be Enemies. He was talking about a situation over in the Ukraine. And what was happening in Ukraine is that there was a village in the north that was being heavily hit by Russian soldiers. And because of the fire that this village was under, people were taking shelter. So one family happened to have a cellar in their home. And a lot of people in the neighborhood, including people who were had disabilities or difficulties, came to that home and went to the cellar. And they spent about 10 days there, really trying to be safe from the bombs and shelling and so on and so forth. It was in a somewhat ruralish type area because they had orchards and trees and other things around the house as well. Well, after about 10 days of being in the cellar and being uh, relatively protected, Russian soldiers kind of stormed the house and forced everyone up from out of the cellar. And when they came up out of the cellar, they made sure that no one else was in the cellar because they put a grenade down there in case anybody had failed to come out. And they sort of threw the family out and they took over the cellar and decided that this was going to be the place where they were going to operate from was this house. Now, the family who had been living there, they were thinking, well, that's not going to work because where are we going to live? And mind you, while all the shelling had occurred before, the roof of the house had been blown off. The family's car had been totally destroyed. It was a lot of devastation and destruction. However, the house was still standing and the cellar was still in place as well. So they approached the soldiers and they said, well, you know, this is our house. If you stay here, where are we going to stay? And the soldiers thought about it to themselves. And they said, well, we could all stay here together. Now, that was an interesting concept and an interesting idea. So as it turned out, the soldiers primarily took residence in the cellar and the family was in the main part of the house. And initially, they were kind of suspect and suspicious of one another. And the Russian soldiers kept close guard on their weapons and so on. After a while, maybe just a couple of days, they realized, let's find out a little bit more about one another. And they actually started interacting together including having some conversations and visits in the main part of the house. And this went on for a three-week period in which the Russian soldiers lived in the home of this Ukrainian family. And here are some of the things that I found just so interesting that occurred as a result of them having conversations. The Russian soldiers began to get information that was very different from what they were hearing back home in Russia. And the Ukrainian family was understanding a little bit more about why the Russian soldiers were doing what they were doing. And if you think about it, 
There's a high cost to misinformation. And let me give you some examples. The Russian soldiers thought that they were coming to Ukraine because they were participating in a special operation and not a war. The majority of them were in their 40s, with the youngest person, one, being 31 years old. So when you're in your 40s, that's kind of old to be fighting an all-out war. And they weren't thinking that that's what they were going to be doing. They also thought that the altercation they would engage would be against the Americans and not Ukrainians. They thought that they were there to rescue Ukrainians who were very disturbed about being separated from Russia and people who were forced to not speak Russian again. And they thought they were liberating these Ukrainians so that they could speak Russian again. And so that all of them together could come under the umbrella of Putin and live happily ever after. And so they really thought they were coming to Ukraine for a victory march in Kyiv and a celebration. And of course, nothing could be farther from the truth in terms of what they were really coming for. And they really believed they were on a rescue mission. Now, of course, as a result of these conversations with the family and particularly the woman of the house, who was very vocal in talking to them about many subjects, she told them, we can speak any language we want. We're not prevented from speaking Russian. We're choosing to speak our own language. And we don't need to be rescued. This is our country, and we're happy living here. And so the Russian soldiers were bombarded daily with this information that was new information and kind of a shock, and they had no idea that this is what they were dealing with. As a result of the conversations, the soldiers also revealed some of their motivations to the family. So the family learned these were not evil people who were trying to destroy them as their objective. These men were looking for a way to care for their families at home. They were trying to make a living. They were trying to pay off debts. And they were living in a country where the options for work were very limited. And being part of this contingent of people that would participate in the war would be guaranteed salary and funding that they could use to raise their children and take care of their families. That's really what they were looking for. They were looking for basic necessities of life that they didn't have back home in Russia. And this was an opportunity to provide those. So when you really get down to it, if we even think about it from a U.S. perspective, many people joined the military in the United States for very similar reasons, to have better opportunities than what they otherwise would have, to have a chance for improving their lot in life through education, through experience, and learning a skill that they can leverage later, post-military, and certainly taking care of their family. So it's very similar to what we might see here. When the soldiers understood more about what was going on, and the woman of the house was very upset about how her home had been destroyed and didn't mince words talking about that, they had compassion. They apologized even for the destruction that they had been a part of. And one of the soldiers even said that later on, when he went back home and he retired, 
he was going to share some of his retirement pension with them so that they could rebuild their home and rebuild their lives. Now, whether he does it or not, we don't know. Whether he even survives and gets back home, we don't know, or if he even has the resources. However, the fact that he wanted to do that, that was in his heart, shows something about the humanity of the Russian soldiers and the fact that they weren't just being evil murderers or warmongers in this sense. I know earlier when I was speaking about Ukraine, I talked about the fact that the Ukrainian women and the Russian women were collaborating together by getting messages to one another about those who were ill and those who had been killed because families wouldn't know what happened to their relatives on either side, whether Ukraine or Russia, and they started sharing that information. So again, you see that greater humanity at work in a very tough and difficult situation and trying to make the best of it together rather than to function as enemies in that situation. When there's a lot of misinformation, there's certainly a major problem. And when I think about a biblical mandate about this, the Bible has a verse that says, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. If we think about the corollary of that, when we believe a lie, we are really in bondage. And if we base our lives on the lies that we believe in, we will be headed in the wrong direction and down the wrong paths doing the wrong thing. So it's very important to know the truth. When there's misinformation rampant, several things happen. It keeps people apart. If I believe something about you that is not a positive thing, whether it's true or false, if I believe it to be true, it may keep me away from you. And if we stay separated, then that fuels the energy of those false narratives. They just get more entrenched. I continue to believe even more how much you are an enemy. You continue to believe how much I am an enemy under those circumstances. We find that in this story that was told by the author here, the truth was told over and over again and repeatedly until it started to break through the barriers, break through the denials to change and shift perspectives and perceptions. I think about the implications for the United States and for other countries as well, because in the past, we have enjoyed far more freedoms in terms of the information that we were able to obtain, particularly in the United States. I think we're in a season right now where even the news that we rely upon so often is heavily influenced really by special interest groups, such as the pharmaceutical industry, and who really mandate what kind of narrative can be shared or not shared because they are paying the bills, if you will, for that news agency to be on the air. As a result of that, we're really getting slanted news or news that may be biased towards one perspective or another. And I don't think that this was as serious a difficulty years ago as I believe it is today. We also find that we have more channels of news information that are narrower. 
so that people maintain a certain perspective without reaching out to hear what other people are saying and what other viewpoints may be. So I remember, for example, during the first presidential election, when President Obama was first running for president, and he gave a speech somehow as part of this whole election thing. And I remember thinking, oh, what a marvelous speech it was. It was very inspiring. It really did have a lot of good points so far as excellent oratory. And that was one of his strengths and one of his gifts. And yet on one news outlet that I was listening to as they were analyzing the speech after the fact, they spent a lot of time talking about how horrible the speech was, how it was inarticulate, oh, so many things that if you listen to the speech, there's no way you could walk away with that analysis. And I was just amazed. I said, did they hear the same speech that I heard? Were they present? Were they paying attention? So you really have to wonder sometimes what's going on. So when we think about this, it's really important to, number one, have free channels of information, all kinds of information, even information that you might not agree with, because as you have the debate, as you engage the conversation, you're likely to learn something more, even if it just strengthens your own perspective, at least you will have had the opportunity to hear the other perspective, and to draw your own conclusions. This brings up the importance of number two, which I will say, dialogue. And when you're dialoguing with people, you're really listening to understand. You want to entertain these different viewpoints and broaden your own perspective as a result of it. And in order to have a dialogue that's effective and that works, it requires mutual respect. It requires creating safe space. And that's what's needed if we're going to talk about very difficult subjects. And as you engage in that safe space, it's possible to find what I'll call common ground. It's possible to find common purpose. And what I would say is that the soldiers, And the family in Ukraine, they did have a common purpose of staying alive. And it's significant to note that the soldiers could have killed the family members and took over the house. However, they chose to spare their lives and they ultimately chose to live, if you will, with the enemy. And there were some benefits in doing that. I think it's important to think about, too, how we can sometimes inadvertently contribute to something that's going on today because of what we might have done yesterday. So when I think about the conflict that's going on in Ukraine right now and the Russian invasion, I remember back to when President Trump was in office and he regularly talked about all that he admired about President Putin. He also described him in many ways as a great leader, you got the impression that perhaps Putin was a role model for him in some way. And then once this conflict started with Ukraine, and even though President Trump was no longer in office, he did continue to say another narrative, which was that Putin is a very smart man. So I think that when we are saying things like this, what we don't know is what is the impact on the person we're talking about 
their mindset, their viewpoint, and what's the takeaway for them. And may have signaled to President Putin that he had our tacit support somehow, and may have signaled that he was in a position to take and make this move at this time. Because if we thought he was a great leader, if we thought he was so smart, then clearly this was his day. So I think we have to be careful about what we do say because of the impact that it may have on other people and the consequences down the line. I think we may have also missed some early signals. Maybe there were some early signals that he was giving off that might have suggested that this was one of the options he was considering. And if that's the case, then we might have wanted to intervene early with some other actions that would stop forward movement towards war and prevent that war. What we do has far-reaching implications and impacts, and we are messaging to people even if we don't know that we're messaging to them about something, and we don't know how they're interpreting the message and what they're going to do with it. And as this war continues and goes forward, we wonder and we have to think about how valuable that ounce of prevention might have been on the front end, looking at the tell signs early on and being able to intervene early with strong responses to that early movement we may have seen, move forward strongly with sanctions at that early point so that, you know, there might be an opportunity to rethink what was planned. I also would say when it comes down to war, and mind you, I would remind you that I am an army veteran from the United States. I understand that there are times when we have to fight battles. There are times when war is necessary. And at the same time, I believe that war is a last option. It should not be an early option or a first option. There's so many other things that we need to invoke first because the cost of war is huge. The cost of war lasts for many generations. And so we want to think about what else can we do? What other answers are there besides war? And then when we find ourselves in these situations, such as these Russian soldiers and this Ukrainian family found themselves in, and the Ukrainian family was very upset and angry over their home and life and livelihood being destroyed, we still are faced with an option, whether we choose to forgive or whether we choose to take vengeance. And in both God's first covenant and the second covenant of his word, he says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And when I think about that, it's important that vengeance belongs to God because he is the only one who can see all angles. He knows what's true. He knows what's false. And being all-knowing, he's the only one that can exact a proper vengeance in any situation. As humans, our vision is limited. We don't see everything. We don't know everything that's going on. And we have to also remember and recall that God has forgiven us for many things. 
that in God's mind are just as egregious as what we see here on the earth and the infractions that we engage in against one another. So since we have been given so great an offense and offenses by God, then it behooves us to think about the ways in which love triumphs over hatred, to think about the fact that love really does, according to 1 Peter 4, 8, cover a multitude of sins. We know that God is love and walking in God and his love, we are able to do supernaturally what we cannot do apart from God's empowerment. I believe that we really do have choices in these situations. The name of that article was called, We Can Only Be Enemies. And I would say, we can go way beyond that. We can choose to be friends. We can choose to forgive. And I think it's significant to remember that with respect to these Russian soldiers, they chose to spare the lives of that family in that house. They chose an option that says we can coexist and live here together, even though we're on diametrically opposed sides in this equation, in this situation. They chose to find common ground, which I would summarize as being to live another day. And they both had that in mind as something that's really important. I think there are a lot of workplace implications of the situation because sometimes we also have factions at work that have been separated and they've been separated sometimes by race or ethnic background or religious background and sometimes just on different points of view on how the company should proceed. And we can take the time just as these took the time to really be in each other's presence and to listen and to learn, seek to have a broader view, have the dialogue, and ultimately to come out and find common ground. Just as between nations, we can have a sense of enemies, enemies in Russia, enemies in Ukraine. The same occurs in organizations. We can set up enemies, different camps, as I mentioned, having different viewpoints across the aisle. It could be this organization on the East Coast versus the West Coast in our company. It could be the people who are in sales versus the people who are in marketing and the way that they think. And therefore, we create these enemies. It could be our suppliers. It could be our customers sometimes even. The way that we view groups, whether internal to the organization or external to the organization, we can inadvertently adopt an enemy mindset which really limits options. And so one of the lessons that we can learn from this situation in Ukraine is that if we look long enough, if we listen long enough, if we take time to get to know the people involved, we may discover that those we thought were enemies are not really so much enemies. And in fact, there may be more common ground than we imagined. And as a minimum, we begin to at least learn and understand the choices they're making and why, which increases 
empathy. And when we have increased empathy, it puts more options on the table, options that can preserve life, options that can actually have us be collaborators, possibly in the future. I know one of the Russian soldiers even talked about the possibility of being able to come and be a visitor in the future. I don't think that the woman of the house and the family was ready for that conversation yet. However, it is a possibility that would never have been a possibility had they killed one another or stayed isolated and separated from one another. So we do have powerful choices. We have powerful options and we can choose to love. We can choose to listen. We can choose to care and we can choose to walk together when it's possible. So let me share a couple different readings with you today. The first one is in Luke, the sixth chapter, and it's verse 27. And it says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also, and from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So that's just calling us to a higher level. That's Jesus speaking about loving our enemies. And one of the things he says, it's easy to love your friends. Anybody can love your friends. It takes a God supernatural power to love your enemies. And that's really what the opportunity is that he's calling us to. Then I'd also like to read 1 Peter 3. And this will be starting in verse 9. And it says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing for he who would love life and seek good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Choose friendship. Choose life. Choose love. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.